the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. For nearly three decades, she's reported the action from the sidelines. She started very young. She's covered the NBA, NFL, Olympics, and the college football and basketball national championships. And now, during these insane times in our world, Michelle Tafoya thinks we need a serious dose of sanity. This is Sideline Sanity with your host, one of the sanest people on planet Earth, Michelle Tafoya. Welcome to Sideline Sanity with me, Michelle Tafoya, sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. There really has never been a better time to invest in precious metals. Go to LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. We so appreciate their support of this show. And if you like this show, uh, check them out, please, at LegacyPMInvestments.com. In this best of episode, after all, we've done over 100 now, I talked to two people who are quite different in their age but very similar in other ways. Robert Woodson is 85 years old. He marched in the civil rights movement. And then he saw some things that he didn't necessarily like. So we talked to him about that. And then I will transfer into the interview with Amala Epinobi, who is 22 years old, who was a really a left a left-leaning, not just leaning, she was a leftist activist with her mom and saw some things and asked some questions and found some things she didn't like. So this is, both of these humans are black and they couldn't be further apart in age. I guess they could be, but from 85 to 22, covering different angles of the civil rights movement in the United States of America, we start with Robert Woodson, an American icon. I was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in the middle of the Depression, um, low-income, blue-collar neighborhood. Uh, as I tell people, even during segregation, 95% of all households had a man and a woman raising children. Elderly people could walk safely without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren. Never heard a gun fired uh, throughout my entire early life. Uh, even doing segregation. Uh, my dad died when I was nine, leaving my mother with a fifth grade education and five kids to raise. My goodness. And I, be, I, I cleaved to a group of friends and they were all positive. And when they graduated from high school, I was a year younger. And so they, I was unaffiliated. I quit. I went into the military uh, in 1954 and was blessed to be trained in the space program, finished my GED, came out, worked uh, full-time, and got my undergraduate degree and joined the civil rights movement, but became very disenchanted uh, with the movement when I over the issues of force busing for integration and also when the civil rights movement morphed into a race grievance industry in the 60s. And they became elected officials. And, and, and so what I've witnessed 
is that the decline in these communities in the face of civil rights gains, and I realized I was in the wrong struggle. So mm-hmm. I began to leave the civil rights movement and work on behalf of low-income people of all races, because as Dr. King said, what good does it do to have the right to live where you choose if you don't have the means to exercise that right? So freedom isn't just opening the doors of opportunity. It means preparing yourself to walk through those doors. And so I've devoted my entire life of working on behalf of low-income people of all races to help them to promote the ability to walk through and take advantage of the freedoms that we have. So that's what my organization of 40 years has done. We, we help people to be agents of their own uplift. And I've been a critic of the, of the, of, of the, of the polarization and tribalization of the race issue, the denigration of the values of the nation. And so I, I consider myself a patriot and the people I serve are also strong patriots. It's just, it's an amazing life story. Your legacy is already set. And, and it's one of the things that caught my attention as you described your experience in the civil rights movement was you were drawn to it and then you were turned off by what you saw happening to it. Was there a specific moment or instigator of that change in the civil rights movement, of that turn toward, as you put it, race grievance? Yeah, there were two uh, situations. I was leading demonstrations outside of a pharmaceutical company, Wyeth Laboratories in Westchester, Pennsylvania. It's a small city 30 miles west of Philadelphia where Barrett Rustin was raised. And when they desegregated, uh, they hired nine black PhD chemists. When we asked them to join our movement, they said they got these jobs because they were qualified. And I realized that this happened a couple more times, that there was a bait and switch going on, that we were using the conditions of all Blacks, but it only prospered uh, those who are professionally designed. So that was one reason. The other on forced busing for integration. I parted company with my civil rights peers because I believe that the opposite of segregation is not integration, it is desegregation. And I think the civil rights movement incorrectly argued separate is inherently unequal, it should have been argued that it is strategically unequal. Because if you say something is inherently unequal, it means anything that is all black is all bad. Hmm. And so uh, the civil rights movement said, well, Bob, your position is consistent with the Klan and the John Burt Society. And my response was, if Hitler likes classical music, should I not like it? (laughs) which is a a, quite a a clever response you make a really interesting point here in other words what you're saying is if you have an all-black elementary school that does not make it bad just because those kids happen to live in that neighborhood and go to that school so why force the integration why not just raise the standards for that that elementary school is that do i have that right yeah in other words what what I, I had an argument with the back in before the New York Bar Association with Julius Chambers. He was the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, a PhD from Harvard. And midway through our debate, I said, Julius, if we have two circumstances, school A 
that's all black where there's a presence of excellence. And school B, that is diminished excellence, but it's integrated. Where should we send our children? He said, to school B. I said, we have no, no, no comment. Let me talk about Michelle. Marva Collins in, on, in Chicago, worst public school, she left and established the East Side Academy where she took kids who were failing in the public schools and demonstrated that they can be taught. And as a consequence of her success, she was assaulted by the teachers union, but also it meant there were some white parents who brought their children into this low-income black neighborhood because Marva Collins demonstrated that she can produce excellence in outcomes. And if you set up established centers of excellence, the byproduct will be integration. Oh, that's interesting because it, it, it attracted these other kids from white communities. And, and so the integration was organic is what you're saying. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, I have challenged some of the 16, 19 people when they were saying that the, that the education disparities today between blacks and whites is associated with the legacy of slavery and discrimination. This is not true because in our essays, we looked at five high schools at the turn of the century in, in uh, major cities in New York, uh, 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 Dunbar High School in, in Washington, Frederick Douglass in Baltimore and Atlanta and New Orleans. 1920, those schools had crumbling buildings, used textbooks, half the budgets, but every one of those high schools out-tested every white school in those cities. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Wow. Wow. See, these are... Yeah, these, that that's that is. I, I'm fascinated to, and when we come back from this break, I'm going to ask you why you think it is that when you have concrete evidence like you've just detailed, why it is that people want to turn their backs on it and continue to cry racism. We're talking with the great Bob Wood, Woodson of the 1776 uh, Unite, and he has done so much throughout his career, and it's. It's just an honor to have him. More with Bob after this. Bob Woodson, you just talked about high schools that had crumbling buildings, used textbooks, but because of the approach, because they believed these kids could be taught, they out-tested they, the white high schools in the same areas, these five schools you, you, you pointed to. Why don't people want to celebrate that success and copy it and instead say, you're going against our narrative and this isn't going to work? What, what, I don't understand 
the resistance to these raised standards, these these examples of achievement and saying, no, 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 you're wrong. We're right. It goes all the way back to the days of slavery that we're underachieving. Because it really deflects tension away from the real problems. And that is there is a, a crisis of excellence in America. When you compare, as my colleague Ian Rowe pointed out in his studies, 40% of white children are not even meeting the basic standards. Correct. So yeah. when you compare whites and blacks, that's an, in it. we ought to be comparing all students to a standard yes. of excellence. And so the only way that we can uh, promote excellence is if we can stop looking at life through the lens of race. Because by, by racializing everything, it becomes a distraction. It becomes a, a, a reason that people can use to deflect attention away away from what I was debating Hawk Newman from Black Lives Matter. And I yeah. said, tell me why we were able to achieve educational excellence when racism was enshrined in law. And we can't today when the per capita expenditure in most education system is the highest and blacks are running the same systems today. And the, and the answer is, as long as they can keep attention focused on racial disparity and institutional racism, they will not have to be held accountable for why children are failing in systems run by black people. In cities just, that have been run for 50 years, that's where you find the crime and the violence. Yeah, yeah. And and it seems to me that the, if you look at kind of the offshoot of all this stuff of Black Lives Matter of, of 1619, we talk about more separation, not less. And, and I'm not talking about segregation. I, it, it just seems to me as though they almost want to be separate. They They want to highlight their grievances and make them the most important people in society instead of kind of reaching across and partnering with everybody who wants everybody to succeed and saying, how do we best do this? It, am I wrong? No, go, go ahead. No, go you're ahead. right. My colleague Delano Spear, uh, uh, Squires, one of our scholars, he, he really described the problem. He says, you have elite guilty whites uh. who are seeking absolution from crimes they never committed and elite <laughs> rich blacks who are seeking absolution from injustice they never suffered. And so, oh my goodness. So, so this whole narrative is being driven by the elites uh, with the consequence that the people at, on the bottom are the ones suffering the most. Yeah. Just like the civil rights leadership opposed choice and education while every one of them sent their children to Sidwell Friends and other private schools. But but uh, to deflect attention away from the, this uh, moral, uh, you know, uh, hypocrisy, mm -hmm. they keep us riveted on race. And so when you say they keep us riveted on race and those who, yes. And so thus those in the nation who buy in, why can't they see past this? And, and is this across black and white communities? It, that, it is, it is elitism that's driving. It isn't race. Okay. It's elitism on both the left and the right. 
Okay. In fact, I'm thinking about being self-certified uh, uh, a racial exorcist. So I'm going to say to all guilty white people, you know, you are absolved from slavery discrimination. Uh, and now let's get down to the business of rebuilding our nation. Back to the business of rebuilding this nation. He is an inspiration. He makes me want to work harder. He humbles me. I really, really, really like Bob Woodson and what he stands for and what he's all about. I also really, really like Legacy Precious Metals and what they're all about. They're about helping you find a hedge against inflation, protection against a weakening dollar, and a way to look at your long-term financial picture that may be a whole lot easier than you think. Now, the days we're living through right now remind a lot of people of 2008 when folks who invested in gold saw really nice gains and other folks lost their retirements. This may be the time that you want to think about putting gold and or silver into your IRA, your 401k, however you want to do it. And if you're new at this, there's no better way to start than by giving Legacy Precious Metals a call because they can help you with all the questions that you might have. So this is a time where you should really pick up the phone and ask questions about how gold and silver should fit into your retirement, your 401k, your IRA. You can speak to an IRA expert at Legacy Precious Metals just by picking up the phone. 866-528-1903. 866-528-1903. They've also got a free investor's guide you can download from their website, LegacyPMInvestments.com. LegacyPMInvestments.com. Look, your long-term financial picture is just as important as the short-term one. So think about adding gold and silver and use the company that I trust, Legacy Precious Metals. Now, as promised, 22-year-old Amala Epinobi. She is a rising star. She is with Prager University. She does a podcast with them. She sometimes sits in for Dennis Prager on his radio show. Young lady, smart human, you know, was caught up in some left-leaning causes with her mom and just decided rather than accepting everything she was being told, she started asking some questions. She started reading some books. She started talking to people and saying, why isn't this fitting for me? Why? why this doesn't seem right. And she's come a long way. Here is Amala Epinobi. Well, I've long been a fan of Dennis Prager, Prager U. I've done a one of his five-minute sort of um, classes online, and I, I, I love the man. And I respect everything he does and everyone he brings on board, and that includes today's guest. Amala Epunobi is a rising star on Prager University. I'm so glad you could join us, Amala. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Likewise. I, I'm going to just cheat here and read from the, the little bio they put on PragerU. Raised in a far-left activist household, 21-year-old 20 Amal Epinobi was once a student organizer for the left. Unanswered questions and a search for the truth led her to a complete ideological transformation. So I guess the first thing I want to ask you is what you remember about your experience of being raised in what is called a far-left activist household. 
Sure. Well, yeah, I, I think about this a lot and I, I go back in the past retrospectively to, to sort of grapple with where I was politically. But I was raised by a single mother of three. Uh, she happens to be white. Not that that's important to me, but it does become important to the story. And she worked as an organizer for a far left organization, and she continues to do so. She does fundraising for a lot of the leftist movements that you see working in the state of Florida right now. So from a really young age, as as a biracial daughter to a white mom, she made me really cognizant of my race, of my gender. And I've I've got plenty of stories and in times where she told me, you know, life could be a little harder for you because you were born black in a white America. So from a really young age, that was just the teaching that I had. And I internalized that in a lot of ways. Where did you fall in the birth order of the three siblings? I'm the middle child. <laughs> the middle child. Well, it's I, I find all that stuff fascinating because I think there are interesting dynamics at play depending on where you are in the birth order. Now, did, did your, what do you have, sisters, brothers? Yes, I have an older brother and then a younger sister. And and did they, uh, they were raised the same way, I suppose? Very similarly to me, I took to it a little bit more. I was super passionate about politics from a really young age, and I wanted to sort of follow in my mother's footsteps and do what she was doing. Well, clearly something changed. What what happened? Yeah, so I, I worked as an activist for quite some time on a volunteer basis throughout middle school and high school. And then when I graduated, I thought, okay, there's no need to pursue higher education. I'm going to change the world. Sign me up. I want to be a youth organizer. And I went to my mom and I got hired at her organization. So I was working alongside her day in and day out. And eventually, as I was working there, I just started to notice some inconsistencies in what we were saying versus what we were doing. There was a lot of blatant racism towards white people that was just constantly going on in between the walls of where I was working. And I was dealing with that nine to five every day and then going home to my white family, my mom, my grandparents who had cared for me my entire life. And my grandparents happened to be conservative. So I was hearing all these nasty things about what it meant to be white in America and then coming home to this loving family. And eventually I just couldn't hold those two thoughts in my brain at the same time. You're a wise and smart young lady. And so <laughs> what? where did then the discovery start? That That is clearly a contradiction you were seeing in the world. And so what did you do about it? You know, I, I took it to the higher ups at the organization because I had a lot of unanswered question questions alongside the whole racism thing. And I, I went to him and confronted the, the VP of the organization. And when confronted with what I had to say, he looked at me and told me, you don't know how oppressed you are. It's not my job to teach you about that oppression. It's not my fault. You're not as angry as you should be. And I went, okay, I think <laughs> wow. I'm in the wrong room, Michelle. Wow. And yeah, I ended up as any young person would just going to the internet and searching up, you know, different things and different issues that I was concerned about, not really with the intent of changing my mind. I wanted to reinforce what I believed. And I ended up finding people like PragerU and Tom Soule, who I now have behind me on my set. And I watched their videos and my complete and utter outlook changed on everything. It is amazing because that has been the mission of Prager University. And in you, you're, you're a living example of how their mission is getting accomplished. My brother likes to call it, uh, you, you eat an elephant just one bite at a time, you know, and, and it's, <laughs> it's slow but sure. Uh, but it's really interesting. Was there any particular episode or something that you saw of Thomas Sowell that made you go, 
kind of like hit you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. So with, with PragerU specifically, I found this five minute video that they created with a man by the name of Sheriff David Clark. Hmm. And the video was titled cops are the good guys. And I saw the title of this video and I thought this is going to be some racist piece of propaganda. Let me click it. I'm going to watch it. It's only five minutes. And I got to the end of it, hearing this former black police sheriff talk about his experience, talk about the stats when it comes to police brutality. And I got to the end and I thought, oh, no, I'm wrong. And it was a really hard thing to admit internally. I wanted to just push back and say, no, everything that I've been taught has been completely right. But what that video sparked in me was, you know, questioning if I'm wrong about this, what else could I be wrong about? And I went down the rabbit hole and found and found Tom Soul and eventually went and bought his book. And, and the book that hit me the hardest was uh, Discrimination and Disparities, where he basically debunks all these ideas we have about institutionalized racism. And I, I just couldn't believe it. And it was really hard to admit that, you know, I was wrong about this. What is remarkable to me, and I give you great credit, is that that probably was extremely difficult. And some people will not confront the issues. And, and I've, I've got them in my family. They won't confront the issues. They won't read the stats or they'll find their way around it. They'll just finesse their way around it and, and never really come to the realizations that you have. So my next question is, what did your mom think about all this? <laughs> well, I I always say, you know, I had to come out of the closet as a conservative, essentially, to my mother. And she was not happy. And I, I completely understand. You know, she dedicated her entire life to this uh, ideology. She still continues to. And I think for her, I was just a child that was going to carry on and follow in the footsteps. So to have that completely crash and burn in front of you, I imagine is a difficult thing for both conservatives and progressives. So she was angry. There was definitely a period of a few months where every time we got together, there was some contentious argument about a social issue or news that was happening in the background. But eventually we were able to decide maybe politics is not a huge part of our relationship and we can just keep our mother-daughter dynamic because that's more important than any of the issues that we could argue about. That's a, that's beautiful. And people could learn from that example. I Again, I refer to my own family. We all have our stories, right? But there are still some fractures in my family based on politics and it's very difficult. So now yeah, my sister and I are trying to bond over things like baseball and, <laughs> and you right? know, maybe keep, keep it to that because uh, otherwise <laughs> it's it can get off the rails pretty quickly. It's it's a remarkable story. Uh, and then your grandparents, you said, are conservative. What do they make of all of this? You know, I I really never realized, you know, where my grandparents stood politically. You know, through my childhood, I noticed that they watched a lot of Fox News. Every time I was at their house, that would be on in the background. But they were just conservative in in lifestyle. They led by example. So, so when I came to them and said, hey, I, I think I'm on your side now, they just, you know, shrugged and said, well, I think that's great. And I, I love to see where you go with it. And it wasn't really a big event like it was with my mom. <laughs> right, right. It wasn't like this big party. <laughs> like, no, yes, certainly not. <laughs> oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's beautiful. Unapologetic with Amala is the name of the show. Um, yeah. And it's, it's, it's getting a lot of attention, which I love. So when we come back, I want to take on a couple of issues with you of the day. Amala Epinobi. Don't pronounce the K, folks. You'll see it there, but it's silent, <laughs> you know, which is kind of neat. All right. Right back with Amal after this. 
Back with Amala Epinobi of Prager U University, Prager U, as it's often called. One of the uh, titles of your podcast recently was "Hating America Has Become the New Trend," and I and it's you know I you're way too young for this, but I hearken back to and I'm too young for this too. But I remember post Vietnam, I was a little kid, and there was a lot of hatred toward America going on, hatred toward the military, et cetera. And I feel like we're having that same sort of um, shudder through America right now, this sort of spasm of hatred. And as it does, usually it's coming from hard left activists in Hollywood, academia, et cetera, the media. Is there a solution here? Or is this just a small enough group that we really don't need to worry? Or do you think they are more influ- more influential than we maybe realize. I, I think it's, you know, it's a double-sided problem. I think there is a small fringe group of people who represent the more extreme ends of the argument. But unfortunately, those people have infiltrated the, the upper echelon jobs of nearly every major industry of influence here, here in America. We're talking media. We're talking our public schools, our public yeah. institutions, Hollywood. So when you have that fringe group of people dictating virtually what everybody sees, hears, and thinks, we have a problem. And I think for me, being a member of Gen Z, I see it being particularly pervasive with with young people. I'm on social media, Instagram, TikTok, and you hear young people just spitting on the constitution. They have a very little understanding of American history. They hate the founding fathers. And when you lack that understanding of what America was and what it is meant to be, I mean, who cares if it burns down? So that's where we're at, I think. It's, it's really troubling to me. I have two teenagers now and I think about their future all the time. And I used to kind of laugh at people who said, Oh, I'm worried about my kids and my grandkids. Well, now I'm worried about my kids and my future grandkids. And I, I see this and it is in a lot of school systems. And this is where it bothers me the most, where kids should be being taught all kinds of history. We seem to be focusing really on framing it in a way that, you know, uh, is built on slavery and it's awful. And all these people were white supremacists and the constitution is built on slavery. And we've made corrections throughout our history. Is it perfect? Mm-hmm. No. Is it ever going to be? No, I, I don't think so. So, and right. certainly socialism is not going to be the great equalizer, dear God. Um, so, <laughs> so when it's, do you get the sense that some people are seeing how, just how far left, like the, the NEA the other day saying, we want to call mothers the, the birthing parent. Mm-hmm. I got so pissed off, Amala, because, because I'm a mom. I love being called mom and mommy. And I love calling my mom a mother. And this word has been around forever. And it's, it's mm-hmm. filled with love and spirit and, and genuine care. And unless it's used in a different way and then it's not so much, but you get the idea. Um, (laughs) you know, I, I just wonder if the pendulum has swung so far that we may come back at least a little bit more toward the center. What, what do you think of that idea? I, I completely agree with you. I think what the mistake that was made, particularly with the progressive left, was coming out with this radical ideology a little bit too soon. You know, you got to dip people's toes in the water when it comes to saying things like we're getting rid of the words man and woman. But they came at us full force with things like gender ideology, the critical race theory in schools, completely focusing on diversity of skin color and gender more than anything else. And I don't think they were anticipating people looking at that and saying that doesn't sound very 
very reasonable. And and what I hope to see in just the next few years is is not just the right coming up and attacking progressives and beating them down and all this stuff, but just reasonable people saying, you know yeah. what, this is not sustainable. You know, I yeah. want to call my mom, mom, <laughs> yeah. and yeah. I want to be judged based on my merit. I don't want to be judged based on my skin color. And I have faith that people are reasonable enough to come to that conclusion on their own. I think a lot of people have. And one mm-hmm. of the, the fear factors is coming right out and saying so, right? And so that we, the loudest voices are the ones on either side of the political spectrum screaming and shouting across the rest of us and meeting here at this this outrage point while all of right. us are kind of sitting here going, um, we'd really love to speak out, but we might get canceled or we might lose our job or we might lose our friends or our family. So I'm just going to shut up and let these two sides go at it. Uh, but I think there are a lot of us that are sort of reasonable and sane and occupying this middle ground. Am I overly optimistic or do you share that? No, I I agree with you. I think there's a lot of people who are there and they're just quietly there. My one fear with that idea, though, is that I think a lot of people are looking up at mom and dad fighting each other. And instead of looking at the ideology and going, there's a problem with the ideology, they're looking at the system itself and saying there's a problem with the American system. And this is something that's going to need to be altered. I see a lot of Gen Z people who are attributing this to the way the country was founded, how we've set up our government and things like that. So if they become disillusioned with how things are set in place, uh, we have a problem. So hopefully they can just recognize this is an ideological problem. We can solve this with reason and logic and just by having these conversations and that will take care of what we're dealing with right now. Oh, I really, I really hope that's the case. You're giving me a little bit of hope because you're from a different generation. (laughs) It's not like I'm this old lady, but you get what I'm saying. I I totally get it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I am old enough to be her mom, but I consider her just kind of a kindred spirit. She is a really cool woman and one to watch. And uh, I don't mind if you watch her podcast now and then, even if it means skipping one of mine. But you don't have to. You can listen to both. All right. Big fan of Amala. This has been Sideline Sanity, everyone. Thanks for listening to this best of. I'm Michelle Tafoya. Be brave and do good. Happy to talk once again with Charles Thorngren, the CEO of Legacy Precious Metals. You know, I think it still is confusing to people, uh, some people, uh, as to why a precious metals investment would be a worthwhile one, particularly at this time when they're thinking, I'm doing all I can to put gas in the car. Why is now a particularly good time? And we'll go from there to how small of an investment is worthwhile for someone. You know, great question. And I think the the importance of why really comes into the fact that we have to save for ourselves, whether it's a little here, a little there, whether it's making it a plan and putting out so much paycheck, whether it's making sure we fund our retirement account. We have to realize we are responsible for ourselves in the long run. (laughs) You mean that no one else is going to ride up and save us, you know, on some white steed? It ain't going to (laughs) happen. It ain't going to happen. You know, and anyone who's promising to do that is getting ready to take advantage of you in some form or fashion. Yeah. And so, so if, if I'm an investor, a potential investor, and I'm, looking at legacy precious metals and I'm saying to myself, yeah, I, I, this sounds smart. 
I don't have a lot to spend. What would you tell that person? I would say, do what you can. If you never start, you never get there. So the most important step you can take is saying, I'm going to take care of myself and my family. I'm going to make it a plan. I'm going to take action. I'm going to start in the way that's comfortable for me. That's the important thing. The first step is always the hardest. But once you take that first step, the second step is easier. And then you're moving. And then once you're in motion, it's hard to stop you. So that first step, most important step. I always tell people they can call and talk to an IRA expert or, or check out the, the guide that they can download for free, the investor's guide. What, what is the number one question that you get from people who are first-time investors? The biggest question I get, is this right for me? That is the question. And that comes from everyone. So, so everyone's asking the same, is this right for me? And yet we're all so unique. And, and yet it, it is a sound investment for just about any portfolio, isn't it? It is. We, even though we're all unique, that uniqueness is going to tailor the way we begin the investment. Okay. But we're all in the same situation. That's the one thing I think we seem to forget in today's society. Whether you agree with somebody or not, we're in this together. America is in this transition that we're in right now. We're dealing with the same issues. Some people like them, some don't, but we're all in it together, right? So the need is the same. How we prepare and how we invest is what changes from person to person, but we all have that same need. It's a great point. And again, I encourage people to, to, to just make the call, pick up the phone. That step is always the hardest. I'm not sure why that is in any kind of effort that you make in life, whether it's weight loss or exercise or investing some way to better your life. It always seems like that first hurdle is, is the challenge. Uh, but when they call, who, who are they going to talk to? Who, what, what's going to be on the other end of the line for them? Great question. You're going to speak with one of our customer representatives and their job is not to sell you metals, right? We have a much different approach. We're going to answer all your questions. We're going to show you what options you have. And on the rare occasion, this isn't right for you. We're going to say this probably isn't right for you. Um, we have a gold company here, but you know, I, I say it all the time. What we actually deal in is customer service. We want each and every individual that calls to get the answers they need to be able to make the decision that's right for them. And we want to do that in a way that's not pushy, that's not salesy. And that's what makes my team so special. We care about each and every caller. And we're going to show you what options you have. And then you get to make an informed decision. So don't be afraid of the phone call. It's the best thing you can do. And this is why I am so honored and I feel privileged to be sponsored by Legacy Precious Metals. They're the ones that I'm going to deal with. And I encourage you to pick up the phone, give them a call, even easier. Go check out their their guide. It's a free investor's guide at LegacyPMInvestments.com, LegacyPMInvestments.com. But as you said, Charles, pick up the phone. You're going to talk to someone who can answer your specific questions and get get the ball rolling, get, get started, do something that is a long-term play for your family's benefit. Charles, it's always great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's always great to be here. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
the explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.